Chapter 24 is a long chapter, but we're not going to cover it all tonight, simply because we covered a lot of it last week. But we want to recap on it and finish it. Isaac was 40 years old, and it's time for him to get married. Now, some people have the gift of being single. It is a gift. You can't pull it off unless you're given that gift. In fact, the, the disciples asked Jesus, uh, kind of perplexed, they asked him a question about being single and being married when Jesus spoke about divorce in the context of Christian marriage. He says that God brought them together from the beginning and they're to stay together until death do us part. And that if a husband or wife leave each other for any other grounds except for sexual immorality, they commit adultery and cause their partner to commit adultery. The disciples never heard such narrow spiritual thought concerning marriage with the background of promiscuity that they had among the Jews. And so the disciples said, well, maybe it's better for just to, just to hang out and be single. Maybe it's better not to marry. And Jesus said, only to whom it has been given can do that. In other words, it's a gift. Some people have the gift of being single. Now, by the way, if you have that gift, I think you know it. Some people say, I really want to be married. What if I have the gift of being single? You don't. You don't. God's not going to give you a natural desire and then just sort of dangle the carrot in front of your face and watch you be tortured your whole life. Just want you to suffer. I don't have the gift of being single. I have the gift of being married. And I knew it while I was single, yet at the same time, I didn't want to go out wife hunting. I wanted the Lord to bring me the one. Because I had seen so many people make mistakes. And they were certain that she was the one. And I found a statistic that people from the age of junior high to the first year of college have five real loves. That's what they consider. This is it. This is really real this time. Five of them is the average. And after watching so many marriages get on the rocks, even Christian marriages, I thought, I want God's highest. Isaac, 40 years old. It's time for him to get married. So Abraham, his father, knows this. And he sends out his servant and he says, I don't want you to get a wife from my son, from any of these people who live around here, the Canaanites. Go back to my family, back into Mesopotamia. And if you'd like to follow the line on the map where Abraham came from, that's roughly the area that the servant was sent to find a wife for Isaac. As the servant goes back, the first stop in Mesopotamia is a well. It was the custom of women to water the animals. Actually, it was the custom of women to do all the hard work. Water the flocks, till the land. I, I had the opportunity of seeing Mideastern life from a Bedouin tent one time. I hung out for a period of time in a guy's tent. And uh, the men would sit around during the day and just kind of lie on their side and drink coffee, be very hospitable to those who were visitors, they invited me to spend the night and have dinner. They were going to slit the throat of a lamb, skin it, and cook it for me. I said, well, i got a plane to catch. I won't be able to make this meal, but thanks anyway. 
But the wife was out in the fields doing all the work, watering and so forth. I'm not trying to get at anything, by the way. It's not leading into anything. That's just a matter of background. The servant goes to the well and begins praying. And he prayed in his heart. He didn't pray out loud, we find later on. He said, Lord, my master sent me on this trip, and I pray that as the women come to the well to bring water for their animals, that the one that I say, Lord, could I please have a drink, the one that you've chosen to be Isaac's wife, Lord, I just pray that she would say, sure, I'll give you a drink of water, and I'll even water your camels, all ten of them. They drink about 20 gallons apiece. So she had quite a job. It was quite a test. He prayed it in his heart. He didn't pray it out loud for obvious reasons. Can you imagine what all the women would do if he said, Lord, I've got a lot of loot here that I'd like to give some fortunate young woman who wants to be this guy's wife. He's very rich, very prosperous, and I just pray you bring the right one. Hey, they'd be lining up to give those camels water. So he prayed it in his heart. Before he finished the prayer, God answered it. And I love it when God does that. There are times when I'll pray, I won't hear anything. I take it as a wait or a no. But there are those rare occasions when even before you finish praying, boom, it happens. Up steps Rebecca. She happened to be gorgeous, according to the scripture, and she was a virgin. She was committed to being sexually pure. and She happened to belong to the relatives of Abraham, and she was watering. And so he said, I'll try it. He said, hey, could I have a drink of water? She said, sure, I'll give you a drink of water. By the way, can I water your camels? And he thought, can you imagine the excitement? I can't believe it. First stop. And it worked. And so he pulled out in verse 22, a nose ring weighing half a shekel, two bracelets for her wrist weighing ten shekels of gold. And he said, who's your dad or whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? She said, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feed, enough and room to lodge. And the man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master as for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told those things of her mother's house, these things. Can you imagine the excitement that she had? That she came home and said, Mom, Dad, you wouldn't believe what happened today. I met this guy. He had a bunch of camels, and he just asked me for a drink, and you always taught me to be hospitable. So I said, let me water your camels. And he said, you know, I prayed that very prayer, and you're the one to marry Isaac. I said, who's Isaac? And told him the whole story, and she's all excited. Laban steps in, who is the brother of Rebekah. Keep his name in mind because he is a greedy conniver. All he could see is the gold bracelets and the gold ring in the nose. He thought, oh, hey, gold. I'd like to get some of that. And pretty soon we're going to see his character develop as one who's greedy for money. It's all he was concerned about. We should refresh our memory as to the typology of this chapter. Abraham is a type of God the Father, who loves his only begotten son, as God called him, and sends his servant out to find a Gentile bride for his wife, or excuse me, for his son. And of course, the scripture says by Jesus, 
in the New Testament, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to have a marriage feast for his son. And he brings out that typology. Isaac is a type of Jesus Christ, who went to Mount Moriah, where Jesus would go 2,000 years later, being offered as a sacrifice by his father Abraham, almost in type of Jesus Christ. And the servant is a type of the Holy Spirit. The servant is unnamed, but we figure that his name is Eliezer because he was the older servant already mentioned a couple chapters back. It was the duty of the older servant to perform this job, this function. The word Eliezer means helper. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit, the helper, has come, he will lead you into all truth. There's an amazing typology of the servant who doesn't speak of himself. But everywhere he goes, he talks about Abraham and Isaac, the father, the son, and reveals the father and the son to those whom he has chosen, like the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was not sent to testify of himself. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit has come, he will not speak of himself, but he will testify of me and show you all things that I have shown to him. That's why I think it is wrong to emphasize the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit himself never draws attention to himself. The ministry of the Spirit is to point to Jesus. You need Jesus. Go to Jesus. Worship Jesus. And for him to be... He's unnamed in the scripture. He's just called the Holy Spirit. He doesn't draw attention to himself. And for us to deliberately say, now, worship the Holy Spirit. Praise the Holy Spirit. Start talking to the Holy Spirit. I think defeats the very work of the Spirit, which is to draw attention to Jesus. Hey, listen, when you worship and you love Jesus with all of your heart, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit's trying to do in you. Then, by that, you are honoring the work of the Spirit, whose job is to lead you to Christ. Just like this unnamed servant back in the Old Testament, Eliezer. We stopped at verse 27, and so I'd like you to look at that once again. He said... Praise the Lord, or blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy. That word mercy is a, a word that you ought to just tuck in your mind or write in your notes. Just remember it. It's a word you're going to see surface more and more and more as the Old Testament unfolds. It's the Hebrew word chesed, which literally translated means love based upon a covenant. Love that is based upon an agreement that God has made. God made a covenant with Abraham, therefore he decides to act in love toward Abraham and his descendants. God loves you because of a covenant that was made at the cross. It's an unconditional covenant, it's an unconditional love. God loves you, regardless of how you act. And sometimes we act pretty rotten, don't we? Aren't you glad that God loves you no matter what? What if God loved you based upon how you act? You know, it's horrible, but sometimes kids are taught. God loves good little boys. God doesn't like bad little boys. Not true. God loves bad little boys. Tell that to a bad little boy next time. Warm his heart. God doesn't love me. Oh, he does too. God doesn't love what you're doing, but he loves you. God's love is consistent. And it's that kind of covenant love... It breaks our hearts. 
melts us. It's the goodness of God, the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That's what the scripture says. Lord, you've kept your mercy and truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. That verse is to me one of the most important verses in the entire Bible on how God leads an individual. How did God lead him? While he was on the way. Sometimes we make the mistake that we just sit back, do nothing, and we pray, God lead me. Lord lead me, please. Please show me, Lord. Now, what if the servant had that attitude? What if he stayed in Beersheba? And he said, Lord, I just pray here in Beersheba that you'll just lead me to that woman. Next day, Lord, I'm still waiting. Would you please show me that gal? Months would go by, and unless he would take a step of faith and get in God's way, get the wheels moving, get the action turning, he never would have discovered this gal. Action must accompany our faith. I've been teaching Nathan how to ride a bicycle. He's a little tall, so he's already outgrown his bicycle, but he's just now getting the coordination. You know, we put him on the bicycle, had the training wheels on, took the training wheels off. What do you think happened the first time he tried it? Big time crash and burn. Major pepperonis all over. But you know what? He's learning now. He's got the coordination. How do you learn? You've got to learn by just... I had to give him a push. Now, what if I sat him down and said, Okay, now, Nathan... Here's a bicycle that is comprised of two equal-sized wheels that spin, and as inertia is overcome by the dynamic of the chain, how much would he learn? You learn by getting in the way and doing it, getting on the bicycle, and actually the faster you go, the easier it is to control. Now he's got the hang of it. The servant was in the way. He prayed, but he went, and he prayed as he went, and God led him. And I think that perhaps the only thing holding some of us back to a dynamic ministry is going for it. Oh, man, we've been praying for months about it, and that's good. And if God has said, be on hold, then be on hold. But how about an adventure? Wouldn't you love your life to be an adventure? Have you ever just woke up in the morning and said, you know, I wonder what God would want to do in my life today. What if he just have some wild scheme for me? Maybe he wants me over in another part of the world. Have you ever been open to that? Have you ever gotten in the way, maybe started making some plans as God spoke to your heart through an individual who's gone out to the mission field or over to Russia or, or wherever? So, you know, I think I'm going to do that. Just see what God has in store. Jonathan got up one morning as the enemies were encamped against Israel. Israel was strategizing how to fight them with the army. Jonathan got together with his armor bearer and he started thinking spiritually. He said, you know, I, I just wonder if you and I could defeat the entire army of the Philistines. How do you think the armor bearer felt? <laughs> that dude, you flipped your lid. He said, no, really, listen. What restrains the Lord in saving by many or by few? That's good theology. Does God need an army to defeat them? No, not really. God can do it without an army. God can do it without two. God can do it on his own. He's done it before. What restrains the Lord, Jonathan said, by saving with many or by few? 
let's go for it. We'll approach this rock. And they came up with this way to test to see if it was the Lord. Said, if this happens, it's God. If this doesn't happen, we'll retreat. And it happened that God used them to wipe out or to dispel the entire camp. Get up in the morning and just say, God, here I am. What do you want to do with me? Where do you want me to go? I'm in the way. And pray along the way and see what God does. And so the young woman ran and told those of her mother's house these things. I've got to admit something to you. It would be much easier if God would just spell out for us his will. And you've wished for that, haven't you? Lord, show me your direction. What do you want in the months ahead? God doesn't lead you like that. The steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. You take one step. And you won't get direction number two till you take step number one. What did God tell Abraham? He said, now Abraham, here's a map. Turn left, go 500 miles. Then, and no, what did God just said? Get up and go. Where? To the place I'm going to show you. Well, well, where is it? I'm going to show it to you. Well, that's not good enough. I'd like something more concrete. No, just move. I'll lead you as you move. Philip in the New Testament was told by the Lord, Philip, get up and go down to Gaza, which is the desert. And what if Philip said, why? Then what do you want? I mean, what am I going to do in the middle of nowhere? Just go. So he took step number one. Then step number two came. God said, see that chariot? Go join yourself to it. Philip could have said, uh, well, what do I say when I get there? But God didn't even tell him step number three. When he got there... It unfolded. He saw the Ethiopian eunuch reading the book of Isaiah. It just happened to be Isaiah 53. So he started talking to him. Hey, do you know what you're reading? No. Well, uh, you're reading about Jesus, and he led that man to Christ. And he understood that God had a plan, but he never would have understood it had he not taken step number one. For years, I felt like God wanted me to replant myself in another land. I felt the urging of God to say, go, leave Huntington Beach. Now, I did, I have to admit, argue with the Lord. I counseled him. I said, God, you don't, you don't move people out of Huntington Beach. <laughs> I mean, people come here. This is where they want to stay. This is the goal. Nope, this is the gateway. And for a period of time, I said, I felt the Lord was just prompting me to get up and go. So I started just being open, talking to people, putting out feelers, seeing what parts of the country needed Bible studies. My first choice that I felt was from the Lord was Aspen, Colorado. <laughs> and so I inquired. And it seemed like the doors were open. I thought, oh, this is great. This is easy. I love it. And I thought, you know, I've never seen outreaches to Aspen. Everybody goes to Mexico and Haiti, but Aspen is untouched. They need something up there. And so I spoke to a group, and they said, boy, we're interested in having a Bible study, and I had made plans to move. And 
There were complications because I had made previous commitments. I was taking a group from a church out in California over to Israel on a tour, and uh, I couldn't move there at that point because I had commitments to this tour. So I went to Israel, came back, was ready to move to Aspen, and uh, the group that was there had folded and basically left town. And so I go, well, now what? And I just felt like God wanted me to go. And, and as the more I talked, the more things came up. I, I thought, New Mexico, Albuquerque, not quite Aspen, but maybe God has something. Sort of like when God said, Philip, go down to the desert, down to Gaza. I won't tell you why, just go. And I felt like the Lord told me in March, during a snowstorm, while everything was brown, the leaves were off the trees, he said, come. I said, all right, I'm going. And I tried to explain to my friend, he said, why are why would you move here? He was coming with me. What is it? I said, don't ask me. I just, by faith, the Lord told me to do this. I know he did. What's, what's the Lord told you? He just told me to do it. We'll see what God wants me to do, but it's one step at a time. Get in the way. Get on the way. Be moving. Take step number one. And then watch God bless it. He'll give you step number two. But if you sit and just pray for direction without taking the step that God sets in front of you, you might be just sitting there for a long time. While I was on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. Verse 29, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. And we read a little bit about him last week. And how the servant comes to the house, recounts his story. We read about that already. And uh, verse 50. Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. Here is Rebecca before you. Take her and go. Let her be your master's son's wife as the Lord has spoken. They heard this whole story and they just went, wow. What can we say? This thing's got to be from God. Go for it. And it came to pass when Abraham's servant heard their words that he worshipped the Lord bowing himself to the earth. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold, and clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. So she's getting all the wedding loot. You know, they got it before the wedding, actually, instead of after the wedding. Instead of signing up for a registry at uh, a local store in the mall, the servant would bring it and just, you know, gave her her wardrobe and gave her her jewelry and the whole bit. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning, and he said, Send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least for ten. After that she, she may go. And he said, Do not hinder me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master. So they said, We will call the young woman and ask her personally. You see, the negotiations up to this point had taken place without the gal. The servant said, let's strike a deal. I want that woman for his wife. No problem. Now they say, look, we're not going to see her again. We want to hang out and say goodbye. Give us ten days. No, I want to leave now. Well, in that case, we better ask her personally if this is something she wants to do. Then they called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. 
That was a step of faith. She knew probably she would never be able to return back those hundreds of miles across the desert and see her family who were living out there in tents. She knew that this was permanent. And they said, honey, do you want to go? She'd never seen the guy before. Didn't know what he looked like. Didn't know what he would act like. Is the guy friendly? Is the guy going to be a jerk or what? But she just said, I will go. And so they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands. And may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Rebecca is a type of the church. If Abraham is a type of God the Father, Isaac is a type of the Son, Eleazar the servant is the type of the helper of the Holy Spirit, then Rebecca is the type of the church, a Gentile bride chosen for Jesus Christ to be the bride. And before anyone can enter into the church of Jesus Christ, that person must answer the question that was given to this woman. Are you willing to go? I'm willing. It takes a personal commitment. It's just not a negotiation apart from the will of that person. There's lots of people who try to escape that question, try to bring it out from being a personal commitment. They say things like, well, I've always been to church. I was raised in the church. I'm a Christian as much as anybody else. I believe in America. I believe in values. Therefore, I'm a Christian. Well, if you haven't personally received Jesus Christ in your heart, you're not. Jesus said, as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become sons of God. To those who believe in, rely on, and adhere to his name. You need to make that commitment like Rebecca did. And then you enter into the fellowship of the saints, the church. To me, one of the greatest pictures in the entire Bible of our relationship to Jesus is that of a bride and a bridegroom. There's lots of images that are given. The most intimate one is of a husband and a wife. You belong to Jesus Christ. You're his bride. You're engaged to him. You're like Rebecca. You haven't seen him face to face yet. But the down payment has been given. The jewelry, the Holy Spirit is in your hearts. It's the seal until the day of redemption. And one day you're going to see Jesus. Until that time, you're engaged to him. The promise is there. The Apostle Paul said, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, even to Christ. And he said, I fear lest somehow you have been moved away from the simplicity that is in Jesus Christ. Do you see yourself as his bride, as engaged to Jesus? Are you courting Jesus or are you flirting with the world? We need to be constantly being nurtured in that relationship of intimacy with Jesus Christ. Now soon, you're going to have a wedding day. The marriage supper of the Lamb, as the book of Revelation describes it. You're going to come down the aisle. Jesus is coming to get you. It's going to be a great day. See him face to face. No more distance. No more hearing messages about the bridegroom. No more instruction from this book. You'll just see him face to face. It's the greatest day. I loved dating Lenya. We had 
good and we had rocky times as we were adjusting to what God was calling us to. But it was great. I remember how nervous I was on our wedding day. and It was 106 degrees in Whittier, California. Got married on the balcony overlooking the first tee of the golf course. Didn't want it in the church, wanted it outside, but it was hot. I remember my response as I saw her in that wedding dress. I dropped my jaw. I turned to the guy who was marrying me. I just said, whoa, check her out. She was stunning. She was a jewel. And every step that she made down the aisle, I was anticipating. And it was so great when she came and we locked arms. And he said, I now pronounce you man and wife. You can kiss your bride. All right. That's it. I love being engaged, but being married is a whole lot better. And it's going to be great when we see Jesus face to face. But we make that commitment now, don't we? Are you willing to go? I'm willing. And it's a commitment that we make now. Now, before we move on, you ought to also know that to refuse a wedding invitation in ancient times was considered one of the greatest insults in that culture. Remember, Jesus gave a parable of the wedding that was thrown, the wedding feast for the son. Many were invited, but they said, I'm too busy, I've got this going. The Lord said, there'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's an insult. Jesus has invited you to his wedding. He wants you to be his bride. He said, would you marry me? And some of you are holding out and you're saying, no. I want to do my own thing. I don't want to belong to Jesus Christ. I'd rather be mildly religious. I'd rather be inoculated with the truth so that I'm immune from the real thing. Jesus loves you. He wants to walk down the aisle with you. And he's given you the invitation. Are you willing to go? You need to respond to him. And so they went, Rebekah and her maids, verse 61, arose and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. And Isaac came from the way of Berlaheroi, for he dwelt in the south. Now, it probably took about a month to travel, as you look on the map, from Mesopotamia all the way back down into Israel, to the land of Canaan. And during that time, the servant probably was revealing things about the son. She was curious. She's going to marry this fellow. Never seen him before. What does he look like? Is he handsome? Oh, he's very handsome. How old is he? Forty. Is he rich? Very prosperous. God has blessed his father and him with great riches. Now, tell me that story about Mount Moriah again. What happened? And, and, and his miraculous birth, what was that like? And she, as she was hearing all about the son, don't you know she couldn't wait to see him? She couldn't wait. Now, the Holy Spirit that does that with us. As we walk with Jesus, he's revealing through this book and our personal experience all about Jesus. And the more you walk with the Lord, man, you can't wait to see him. Can't wait to see him. I meet many young Christians, and they're, they're having a good time, and life is, they've got, you know, they're holding on life by the horns, they've got it uh, going, they're having a great time. The prospect for many of them to leave this earth by death or even by rapture, to some, isn't appealing. 
Um, uh, I don't want to go to heaven right now. I don't want to be with Jesus. Uh, you know, I want to have a lot of fun first. I met a gal, seriously, who said, she said, I, I'd be angry with Jesus if he raptured us before I could get married. Now, I didn't rebuke her. I just thought, hey. Wait till she grows in the Lord, walks with the Lord a while. She, the older you get, the, you can't wait after a while. You've heard so much about him. And the Holy Spirit has revealed about heaven. And the gates of heaven as these huge pearls. And the river of life and the book of Revelation and the trees that grow alongside. You think, I can't wait to see this place. It's got to be decked out. I want to check it out. And so she's coming. And Isaac, verse 63, went out to meditate in the field in the evening. Now we get the first insight into the kind of man that Isaac was. He was a spiritual man. He went out to meditate. That is, to meditate before the Lord prayerfully. He was meditating. He was praying probably about this woman. Oh God, I just pray that she's pretty. Lord, I pray that she's industrious. Lord, I know that you only want the best, but Lord, I, in, I'm sure he was praying those kinds of things. An interesting and important point about dating. Isaac was actively involved in the dating procedures of his time, which were that a servant would choose, by the father's permission, a wife for him. Even though we don't do that today, he was actively involved. He was out there letting it happen, hoping that it would happen, but he was meditating out in the field. He was waiting on the Lord, praying. It's one thing to be actively involved in dating, hoping what God will bring your way. It's another thing to beat the bushes. It's possible to become distracted in looking for a spouse. Pretty soon, that's all you can think about. You meet some new girl and you think, Lord, is she the one? Well, maybe not her. Ooh, maybe she's the one. Well, I don't know. She's a little cuter. Maybe she's the one. Pretty soon, you can't even fellowship with a sister because you're thinking, you're wondering. And it can become a distraction. And you can start moving ahead of the Lord. When I taught a little Bible study in Garden Grove, California years ago, this guy came in one night, the prophet type. You know that type? God told me, thus saith the Lord. He came and he said, This woman here in your Bible study, God has shown me that she's to be my wife. I've seen her in a vision. I know that she's the one. So she was told. He approached her and said, You're the one. God told me. I'm going to marry you. And she looked shocked. She said, Hey, buddy. She pulled up her wedding ring. She said, I'm married. <laughs> and I love my husband. Now this prophet said, well, you've obviously made a mistake. You've married the wrong man. I'm the man you're to marry. God showed me. Now, at that point, I was getting pretty angry. I wanted to just kick the guy out on his ear. And I did. I said, there's the door. Get out of here. You're not welcome back again until there's repentance in your heart. Well, I'm a brother. Well, you're not acting like one because you just insulted that sister and the marriage covenant she has with her husband and you just insulted God by calling on his name when she's already had a marriage covenant with this fellow. It can become distracting and you can get out of God's will. He's out there meditating in the field, active, but at the same time waiting on the Lord. That's why when I do get to meet with a couple that I'm going to marry, 
before the wedding, I always asked them to give me their spiritual development. How'd you meet? What did the Lord do in your life? How do you know that this is the one God has for you? Tell me your spiritual development. I get interesting answers. Let me tell you about one. <laughs> well, let me back up. When I asked my wife to marry me, I was very convinced that it was the Lord. I came to that settled conclusion. You are God's mate for me, Lenya. She said, you're God's mate for me. We understood that. And so we went to one of our pastors. And uh, I looked at her and I said, now, Lenya, I, I want to be accountable. We're convinced that God wants us to be married, but we still need to weigh what is in our hearts with our pastor because he knows us very well. And if he has a spiritual red flag and he says, I don't think you guys are mature enough, it's going to take some more time, you're going to need a date, then, then honey, I'm going to do that. I'm going to respect that. I'm going to be accountable to that. She said, I agree. Let's do it. Now, I've always followed that procedure. I think that there ought to be a spiritual accountability. I want to kind of get a spiritual assessment. How'd you meet the guy? How do you know he's the guy for you? Do you love each other? Are you attracted to each other? Have you worked out conflict? What about uh, finances? What about sexual matters? Have you talked these things over? In-laws, outlaws, the whole bit. <laughs> and I remember one couple... It was the day before their wedding. It was the only time, thank God, I had this. They came in, and I said, yeah, we prayed together. And I said, I'm really excited about what God's going to do tomorrow. And, uh, you know, they were just sitting over there kind of like, get this thing through. We've got plans. And I can understand that. Weddings take an awful lot of planning. And uh, I said, well, now tell me about how you met and what the Lord has done in your life. And they did not like those questions. So I said, well, tell me about your spiritual development personally. Do you fellowship? Do you read the Bible? She said, oh, well, we used to fellowship. We really don't. I mean, we come here every now and then. Not really in constant, really much. And, but, you know, we're busy like everybody else. That's life. We try to read the Bible from time to time. I, you know, I, when I get to it, I do it. Why are you asking me these questions? I said, because I love you. And I'm a pastor. That means I'm to shepherd your soul, and I'm accountable for God for what I'm doing. And I kept asking questions. Finally, she stood up. She said, I resent you asking me these personal questions about my spiritual life. I said, young lady, I'm accountable to God. And at this point, I don't care if you like me or you don't like me. And if you don't want to answer these spiritual questions or these questions about your relationship, you being very indignant, and I see a real problem in your relationship, tomorrow's your wedding, I'm not going to do the wedding will refuse it. Because I'd rather stand before God with a clear conscience than pat you on the back and make you feel good while you make a mistake. Now, I can't decide for you. You've got to decide for you. But I can decide for me if I'm going to do your wedding. At that point, she stormed out of the room, hit the table, walked out, slammed the door. What was interesting is that during the whole episode, the fella said absolutely nothing. Oh, he kind of interjected, well, yes, honey, whatever you say, dear. And, you know, just, just weaseling the, through the whole time. <laughs> I said, you know, there's an indication here, in my view, that there's a gap of spiritual leadership. She dominated the conversation. 
You kind of just acquiesced to every wish. You didn't make a stand, answer any of these questions yourself. When the question was, and I do see a problem. Now, I'd like to marry you. I'd like to work out and resolve the conflict. I don't want to just write you guys off. You've got a couple hours to go find her, bring her back. Let's pray together, resolve the issues, talk through, make a plan of what God's going to do in your life, and then let's go for it tomorrow. They never came back. Relatives came in from out of town, but I never performed the wedding. I really don't know where they were married. But I would rather stand before the Lord with a clear conscience, if that is my choice, if I have to offend people or offend God, guess who I'm going to offend? They were offended by me. And I'm probably sure that they went around town talking me down. And you know what? I didn't lose an ounce of sleep that night because of it. Because I'm responsible to the Lord as they are responsible to the Lord. And it's important to be meditating in the field and watching God do the work and be able to recount what God had done just like the servant was able to recount what God had done for Isaac and Abraham and Rebekah. It's important. And so Rebekah lifted her eyes. When she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. For she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, That's my master. So she took a veil and she covered herself. I love that. In a day and age when the opposite is true, <laughs> this is refreshing. Instead of trying to take something off, she was putting something on and veiling herself and keeping herself until that time because she loved him. Not only was that part of the culture, it was honoring to the person and to God. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And don't you think he was just excited to recount the whole story? Isaac, you wouldn't believe it. The first well I, I came to, she showed up. And I prayed, and just like that, God answered it. It was great. And Isaac brought her into his mother's Sarah's tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. He loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. A couple suggestions before we tackle the next chapter. If you're dating, develop a spiritual checklist. Ask yourselves, gals, is this man that I'm dating and want to marry a spiritual representative of Jesus Christ to me? Is he able to lead me spiritually, take spiritual reins in the household, lead me before the Lord, encourage me in the scriptures? And then, when you date, have a goal. In your dating. What's your goal in this relationship? Is it to go cruising? To go partying? If your goal is this, if your goal is, okay, here's this woman that I'm dating. If I can draw her closer to Jesus, and by her I can be drawn closer to Jesus, then even if we break up, what have we lost? Now, it's going to be difficult, granted, because there'll be that attachment, yes, but there will be then a goal in this relationship to grow closer to Jesus. Now, this is going to sound strange to some of you who think that dating, the only thing to do is to go to a movie or to dinner, but how about going witnessing with her or him? Just go share the gospel. Say, let's go out and preach the gospel tonight. When I first dated my wife, that's what we did. We went to this little coffee shop in Costa Mesa. We used to find people, and I used to share the gospel. Now, Lenny was intimidated by that. She had never just gone up to someone and talked to them. But she observed, she watched, and she prayed while I did it. And it was great as she prayed and I shared and people were led to Christ. She was able to see my heart spiritually and I was able to see her priorities. How about praying together with a group? 
First date I ever took her on was to church. Set the priorities and the goals at first. And then the rest will fall into place. So he loved her. Now we know that Sarah is dead. In chapter 25, Abraham goes for it again. Abraham again took a wife. And her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba, Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were a list that I will not read. Keturah was probably a concubine like Hagar was the Egyptian that was owned by Sarah previously. Now, uh, polygamy was pretty much a cultural norm from some of these ancient times. Keep in mind, this was not God's design. It happened. It was not what God's will was. For he talked about a man and a woman being joined, one husband and one wife. Yet polygamy was part of the Hittite kingdom. Uh, the Assyrians did it. The Canaanites did it. And so, you know, uh, Abraham had Hagar and had Sarah, but he stayed true to Sarah after Hagar left. And now that Hagar is, excuse me, and now that uh, Sarah is dead, he's free to marry. And so he marries again a Keturah. Uh, he's got a big family. It's not just Ishmael and Isaac. Remember, God said that many nations would come from him. It's not just speaking of the Ishmaelites and the people of Israel, but the list of sons that are born by Keturah give him a lot more nations. In fact, we read about Midian. The Midianites were the people that Moses went to later on when he worked as a shepherd for several years out in the desert. And his wife was a Midianite, one of the descendants of Abraham. Now, the rest of the names form a brief genealogy. Just a reminder. There's a list of names several times in the pages of the Old Testament. And you might think it's boring. But there's a purpose in the genealogies. The genealogy is given, the ancestry of a person is given, up until the point, just to give you enough background. After it's not needed, it's tossed out. They don't follow it any longer. There's one genealogy that is uppermost in the Holy Spirit's mind, and that's Jesus Christ. And so you read how genealogies surface, and when they don't pertain to Christ, they're just left, and the godly seed, the lineage, is followed all the way through Scripture. Now, verse 7 tells us, this is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, 175 years. He was ready, man. He was ready. His body was wasted at 175. And Abraham breathed his last. And people say, well, what did he die of? Here's what he died of. He said he died in a good old age, an old man full of years. He died of years. He was full of them. That's what he died of. He was just too old. And he was gathered to his people. And his son Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephraim, the son of Zoar the Hittite. Of course, that was the field that he bought for Sarah, who died. We read about him a couple chapters ago. Again, if you ever want to go to Israel, and if the West Bank is not too volatile, go down to Hebron, and you can see the cave of Machpelah and the spot where Abraham and his wife Sarah are buried. And according to some of the ancient excavations, uh, the cave has been found, and even uh, people claim to have looked upon some of the uh, remains, the bones, or the ossuaries where the bones were laid. Um, of course, they've disintegrated by now, but uh, people claim to have seen them. 
we see that in verse 9, Isaac and Ishmael are back together. For what? Their dad's funeral. It's unfortunate but true, but sometimes it's the funeral, the death of a loved one that brings family members together when they're at odds with each other. It's only when somebody dies that they get back together. And here they're burying their dad. They put him in the cave of Machpelah. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beer Laharoi. Abraham was 175 years old. Now that's not long in compared to eternity, but on earth years, it's a long time. Paul the Apostle said our body's like a tent. And there comes a time when the tent gets old, the flaps stretch, they lose their strength, the poles start shaking a little bit, and it's time to move from a tent into a permanent building. Have you ever gone camping for a long time? You know, it's fun at first, isn't it? The first night, oh, this is great. We should do this more often. Look at the stars. Home-cooked food, rugged wilderness. But then the next day, you do it again, and you haven't had a shower. And you have to get water from the pond or whatever and purify it and cook it. And, you know, after a week of that, and you start smelling pretty ripe, <laughs> you've had the same kind of food, and that ground gets harder and harder night by night, you think, you know, I can't wait to get back into my cozy bed at home. Tents are great temporarily, but there comes a time when you want to trade in the tent for something permanent, a home. So the, Paul, the Apostle Paul said, we who are in this tent earnestly desire to be clothed with our heavenly habitation. And he said, we have a building with God not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The older we grow, the more we realize that we are, this body is made for temporary use. And one day God's going to graciously say, leave your tent, let's go home. In my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so, I go to prepare a place. Every time I do a funeral, I like to remind the people in the funeral that the person who has died has left us his tent. But if he's a Christian, he's in a building not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And the longer we're in this tent, we groan, right? The older we get, the more we groan. Oh, ouch, ooh, my back, oh, this hurts. And by 175, that tent is really, really gone. But at every funeral, I like to read this called Mr. Tentmaker. It puts it in perspective. It's the perspective of a man asking God about life and death. And it's called, Oh, Mr. Tentmaker. And it says, It was nights living in this tent when it was strong and secure and the sun was shining and the air was warm. But, but Mr. Tentmaker, it's scary in here now. My tent is acting like it's not going to hold together. The poles seem weak and they shift with the wind. A couple of the stakes have wiggled loose from the sand. And worst of all, the canvas is a rip. It no longer protects me from the beating rain or the stinging flies. It's scary in here, Mr. Tentmaker. Last week I was sent to the repair shop, and some repairman tried to patch the rip in my canvas. It didn't help much, though, because the patch pulled away from the edges, and now the tear is worse. What troubled me most, Mr. Tentmaker, is that the repairman did not seem to notice that I was still in the tent. They just worked on the canvas while I shivered inside. I cried out once, but no one heard me. I guess my first real question is, why did you give me such a flimsy tent? I can see by looking around the campground that some of the tents are much stronger and more stable than mine. Why, Mr. Tentmaker, did you pick a tent of such poor quality? 
And even more important, what do you intend to do about it? God's response, O little tent dweller, as the creator and provider of tents, I know all about you and your tent, and I love you both. I made a tent for myself once, and I lived in it in your campground. My tent was vulnerable, and some vicious attackers ripped it to pieces while I was still in it. It was a terrible experience. But you'll be glad to know they couldn't hurt me. In fact, the whole occurrence was a tremendous advantage because it is this very victory over my enemy that frees me to be a present help to you. Little tent dweller, I am now prepared to come and live in your tent with you if you will invite me. You will learn as we dwell together the real security and that it comes from my being in your tent with you. When the storms come, you can huddle in my arms and I'll hold you. When the canvas rips, we'll go to the repair shop together. Someday, little tent dweller, your tent will collapse, for I've only designed it for temporary use. When it does, you and I will leave together. I promise not to leave before you do. Then, free of all that would hinder or restrict, we will move to our permanent home and together forever rejoice and be glad. <laughs> now, we often ask that question. Why did you give me such a tent of such poor quality? Hey, if you had a better quality tent, you might live to be 175. How would you like that? Or 200 or 300 or 969 like Methuselah. Listen, after 700 years, it gets old. <laughs> he died full of years, Abraham did. And we see in Genesis that the lifespan is shortened until we read the book of Psalms. And what's the average age during that time? 70 years. 70 years. If by reason of strength you get 80, great, the scripture tells us. There comes time when the tent needs to just be thrown aside. Now, Abraham dies and becomes the chief comforter in Hades, a place known as Abraham's bosom. You can read it on your own in Luke 16. Before Jesus Christ comes, dies on the cross, and rises from the dead, Hades, which is an old Hebrew term for, or Sheol, for the place of the dead. Hades was divided into two compartments. Those awaiting final judgment and separation from God, or those who by faith, according to God's covenant promises, were on the good side of Hades, a place called Abraham's bosom. Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a story, not a parable. He tells a story about a rich man and a guy named Lazarus who was poor, a beggar, who dies, both of them, one goes to a place of torment. One goes to a place called Abraham's bosom and is comforted by Father Abraham as they await for the promise of the Messiah. And in torment, the rich man cried out and said, Father Abraham, dip your finger in water and touch my tongue. I'm tormented in the flame. Abraham said, there's a great gulf that's fixed. I can't go over there. You can't come over here. The rich man said, well, then go appear to my family and tell them, man, warn them lest they come to hell, this place of torment. Abraham said, no. If they did not receive Moses or the prophets, they will not believe though one rises from the dead. A great gulf was fixed. Now, Jesus, when he died, before he ascended into heaven, descended in the lower parts of the earth and led the captives from their captivity. Those who by faith were looking with Abraham to the coming of the Messiah to free them to have access before God. They were waiting. They were being comforted until that time. Now, today, if a person dies in Christ... He doesn't sleep. His soul doesn't sleep. He's immediately in the presence of God. 
Remember, Jesus told the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. You don't have to wait for it. Paul said, For me to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so just as Abraham is now with the Lord and all the faithful of the Old Testament, when a believer dies, he's immediately in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. The next several verses have the genealogies of Ishmael and Isaac. I want you to look at verse 19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. That is, she couldn't have children. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. I think we often neglect the spiritual when it comes to having children. This is the day of birth control and planning children. We say, well, wait three years before we have kids. In those days, of course, they didn't aff- that wasn't afforded them, and they saw children as a direct blessing from God. In fact, to not have children was considered a curse. Now, it's not that way to people today, but Abraham, excuse me, Isaac was the one who prayed that his wife could have children. He stood in the gap for her. She got pregnant. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, If all is well, why am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. She thought, Goodness gracious, two nations. I I just wanted a child, not two nations. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, how much consciousness is there in the womb? How much emotion is there in the womb? We really don't know. Just like we could ask how much consciousness and emotion and and those kinds of things in the first year after a child is born. It's really hard to know. And we know that they develop personality and they goo-goo and gaga and they can show uh, joy and uh, pain and discomfort by crying. But just what is in their thoughts, it's very difficult to ascertain. It could be that there was emotion that was felt prenatally. Whatever, we're sure certain that God is concerned about an unborn child. Because the life is spoken of while the child is yet in the womb. And they're struggling together. Perhaps, you know, it was, it's, it's tight quarters. There's two of them. There's twins. And it could be that, you know, it's hard to adjust in that position. And, you know, they, it could be that they felt emotion. They were struggling against one another. Hard to tell. there's a prophecy here. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now that's against the old law of the firstborn, as we're going to see next week. The prophecy was given to this lady that it won't be your firstborn who's going to have the legal rights or the lineage of the Messiah, but the older one will be the servant of the younger one who will take the rights. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first one came out. He was hairy, or he was like a hairy garment. You know, some kids are born, they're just an enormous amount of hair on their bodies. Others are born without any hair. Others get that way later on in life. They lose their hair. But the first one that came out had lots of hair. And because of the, uh, 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 the blood that's involved, he was red and he was hairy as he came out. 
The first one came out all red. He was hairy like a garment all over. So they called him, appropriately, Harry. <laughs> which is what Esau means, or, or red. Edom actually means red. Esau means Harry. You know, he came out and goes, Harry. Hey, let's call him Harry. Afterward, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So they called him the one who holds the heel. Heel catcher, Yaakov. Jacob means heel catcher. Originally, it spoke of God who is at your heels protecting you. It came to mean one who is a conniver, a supplanter, because of the kind of personality that heel catcher has. So the boys grew. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So we're going to see problems in this family. There's favoritism. Dad is his favorite, and he favors Esau, the athletic type, the all-American guy, the guy who goes out for football, star quarterback, real outdoors kind of a guy, likes to hunt. This is my boy. He's hairy. He's a man. He likes to hunt. Don't want no sissy. Jacob was a mild man. The Hebrew translation literally is perfect, or better translated, complete. He really was, and he was a good chef. He cooked. He really was close to Mama and her apron strings. He liked to hang out in the tent and, you know, cook up the meals. And, he, had, you know, he could make that great green chili stew. And uh, brother would go out and hunt it and he'd cook it up. Mom really liked Jacob. Like that helper. Just two different, totally different personalities. But Jacob does, though he is that manipulator, has a spiritual side to him. And he loves God and he craves that which is spiritual. Though he has a lot of baggage. And God really has to hammer this guy to get rid of the baggage. God will wrestle with him. We'll see. Esau could care less about spiritual things. He's a man of the world. A man of the flesh. Wants to have fun. Wants to party. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's all he'd live for, the weekends, the hunt. We'll just read up to verse 34, and we'll quit. No, we won't. It's, it's time to quit. We'll quit now, and we'll finish up next week. Yeah. Rebecca was asked, will you go with one, this one? Will you go with him? And she said, I'll go. Some of you have been invited to church by your friends, or you've come because you feel comfortable in a place like this. It's not a traditional church. So you come, but your spirit has not been awakened. It's not that you really crave yet the things of the spirit. You're still really like Esau. You haven't been changed. You haven't been touched. You've sort of been on the fringe. You've observed other people here, but the life of Christ isn't within you. You're not certain that you have forgiveness of sins. You're not sure that if you were to die tonight, you'd be in the presence of the Lord. God wants you to be sure. And he's asking you tonight, will you go with Jesus? Will you have Jesus as your lawfully wedded groom to have and to hold from this day forward? And you can say, well, I'll decide later. Well, then you've already decided tonight. To be undecided is to be decided. You've said, I will not follow Jesus tonight. I refuse to respond to him. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. The question goes out, will you go with him? What will your answer be? It has to be one or the other. And Jesus is asking you to come home to him tonight. 
He wants to give you forgiveness of sins. He wants you to receive Him as He Himself said, as many as received Him. He gave them the right to become sons of God. To believe in Him by faith. To cling to Him. To come to Him in repentance. And to take His life. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that those who are here tonight in this room who have not responded to the gospel would tonight respond in faith positively and once for all answer the question, yes, I will go with Jesus. As you're in an attitude of contemplation right now, Meditation, thinking about your life. 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 Meditation, thinking about your life.